We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson. And Jasmine Olnut. And guess what we're doing today? Well, Cheryl, I think we're going to talk about some women worth knowing. We are. It's another episode of your favorite program. Absolutely. Women worth knowing. And we're still in the Reformation. We're not rutted. We're not stuck. But there's just so many amazing women uh, during that time period. And I'm really excited because today Jasmine's sharing with us about two Italian women. Yes, surprisingly, some writers during that time. And as we've talked about during the Reformation, uh, this was a time when women were given a little bit more of a voice and opportunity as this all of this change is happening in Western society. It brought an opportunity for them to speak and to write, all kinds of things. So. I think the, the um, interesting thing for me, too, is to know that these women are Italian, because I think when we think Italian, mm-hmm. we think Catholic. Mm-hmm. And we think loyalty to, you know, the Vatican and the Pope. So to yes. find out that they're these um, women writers who are writing about, you know, grace, mm-hmm. you know, give us like a little capstone just really quickly about why Reformed theology, why it made such a difference during this time. Like what what made it the standout from like the Catholic? Well, the, the, main, the main points, and these were the ones that Luther drove home, were... Um, Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority. The Word of God is the authority. And, you know, sola fide, by faith alone. Um, So justification by faith in Christ, not by works. Which, like you said, and I'm glad you mentioned that, which would have been a big deal for uh, people in Italy in particular because Italy and Spain and France were such Catholic strongholds. And so it was ingrained in the culture there that you have to earn your salvation by some means, whether it's by penance or going to confessional or buying holy relics, all of those kind of things. And we've touched on some of those. Yes. And also to the the Catholic Church, you know, as we mentioned in previous episodes, episodes mm-hmm. we talked about how the, the popes in those days had illegitimate children. Oh, my gosh. All of that. And yeah. so there was so much immorality and mm-hmm. corruption because they weren't interested in sola scriptura. They weren't interested in what the Bible had to say. Yeah. They were playing this kind of as they went. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just in these offices in the church were bought for the most. Yeah. And that goes back. You guys might recall from some of our earlier podcasts as we talked about the Middle Ages and even going back to uh, really to Emperor the Roman Emperor Constantine. Ever since that time, there'd been this idea of church and state being together, ruling together in society. And so you've got a lot of politics mingled in with the church. And that's what led to a lot of this. Like you're saying, buying offices and positions. It was... You know, it wasn't a spiritual thing. It wasn't, oh, I'm called to the ministry. It's, no, I got this position because my uncle was related to the governor or something like that. And as we mentioned in previous podcasts, too, the Reformers didn't begin as Protestants. The Reformers wanted to come in the movement and say, look, let's get back to the Scriptures. Mm. And this is what the Scriptures say. Mm -hmm. You know, let's get back to the scriptures, what they say, and let's base everything in the scripture, sola scriptura. Mm. But also, let's recognize that our salvation is not merited, is not earned. It's not by what we do, or as you said, by by buying indulgences, Mm -hmm. buying the right to sin, or by confession or these rituals that we've added to the word Mm. of God. But it's only singly by faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done. And that's where we believe today 
too. Thankfully. And so we're going to bring up these women because they're really going against the grain yes. of their times. Yeah. And as you said, that is important that they really wanted reform. The heart of the reformers, that's why they were called reformers, was that the church would see the light. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, yeah, it is about the Bible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is about Jesus. It's just unfortunate that the church didn't. And that's mm-hmm. why they became the Protestants. These and women are kind of like in that vein as well, wanting mm-hmm. to reform. The church didn't. But the people did. Yes, the people did. Sorry, yes. The church hierarchy didn't. Right. The church hierarchy didn't. But all these people did. Yes. And thank God, because they wanted to come um, back to the scriptures, know the scriptures. And all of a sudden with this, with the reformers, what the scripture said became such a priority. And then they began to write about what they were seeing in the scripture. So, yeah. Nice segue right there. I'm ready. Writers. (laughs) So, yeah, like Cheryl said, we're going to talk about two Italian gals today. Uh, the first one is Vittoria Colonna. Quite a name. I love her you name. You said that so well. Vittoria Colonna. I don't, yeah, if there's an Italian listening, I apologize. <laughs> that probably didn't sound right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like we were saying, we don't often think of Italy as having a connection with the Reformation, but there was a group of reform-minded people. It's kind of like how the Lord just has a remnant everywhere, doesn't he? He always has people whose hearts he's touching and working in to transform them. And so that's what we see. Even in Italy, in the heart of where the Vatican was and all of that, there was this group of reform-minded people, and they were known as the spirituali, right? Which sounds like the word spiritual, right, in English. And Vittoria Colonna was... How, yeah, 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 yeah. How about that? <laughs> Does it just sound like... No, it means bus it stop. Is. No, it... Yeah. <laughs> So she was one of these people, and she became a really important figure actually in Italian literature, surprisingly, just in general. Uh, Margaret King said that she was the first woman to open the doors of the public literary world and to publishing for women, which is pretty yeah, surprising. Who said that? Uh, Margaret King, who's a scholar. She's an author. She's written on some of these Reformation women. Okay, that's important to oh, know. I will put it in the, yes, it will be in the notes or the where yes. we list the books that we reference. Because I never heard of Margaret King before, ah. so I'm like, oh, wait, <laughs> her gut. Yeah, that's right. King also says that any study of women writing in Italy must begin with Colonna as its founding figure. Mm. And that's actually kind of ironic because Vittoria actually didn't support the publication of her works. She was very humble and wanted to just kind of downplay it a little bit, but it's interesting that she kind of just, you know, how in spite she, of herself. How old is she at the time she begins to write? Ooh, she will be in her, well, she started in her mid-late 20s, but became more spiritually minded in her 30s and 40s. Interesting. So that's what we're going to see yes. there. So, yeah, pretty young. So she was born actually into a very powerful, noble Italian family, of course, and from her childhood, she lived in the Italian court um, in Naples, particularly. And so it's interesting because Machiavelli, who might be a familiar name in history, I know, bad boy, right? But he uh, talked about her father as a military strategist. So there was a real connection to important people uh, there with her family. Her mom was also um, very sophisticated. She was a courtier. And so um, interestingly, her family was often in a lot of political and military conflicts with the Pope. I think that's why Machiavelli probably liked him. Machiavelli wrote The Prince and the whole... Uh, the ends justifies the means principle. And so he kind of pushed back on some of this well, he church was, state stuff. Right. He was applying uh, it to the political realm. He really was. But he was writing about specific people, but changing their names. Uh, right. <laughs> so it's the stories of what was going on. And he was trying to uncover the corruption, mm. albeit he felt like the answer was war. Yeah, exactly. So he didn't have Violence, the right solutions. Fear. but Yes. <laughs> but obviously, you know, there we see her family was yes. kind of in that same frame of mind. 
So she married in either 1507 or 1509, we're not sure, <laughs> uh, to a marquis and a soldier named Ferdinando Francesco Diavolos, who spent most of his time away from home on military campaigns. Again, this was a very militaristic-minded family, clearly, right. and she married a man who was also in that vein. So she was probably, well, she was born around 1490, so probably about 17, 18 years old when she got married. So several years later, uh, in 1525, she was widowed at the age of 35. And uh, at that time, she just started to go and live in convents, which is interesting. She didn't actually become a nun, but probably because of her wealth and position, she could just go live in a convent and, you know, well, nobody minded. And then you're kind of tucked safer. away and safe. Exactly. But think about, you know, in our other podcasts we've talked about, these women, um, if they had any money, widows were very vulnerable yeah. because people were, were always trying to take their money away. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah, their totally. lands away and everything. So convent is a safe place Probably to be. Probably a smart move on her yes. part. And she still um, traveled pretty extensively, uh, corresponded with a lot of people. And like I mentioned, she had written when she was younger. She'd written a little bit of poetry. But after her husband died, that's when she really launched out and started to become a more celebrated poet among the elite, of the educated. You know, which brings up the point, too, that she would go to a convent because reformers were in the church. They mm -hmm. didn't see themselves as outside or opposed to yeah. the church. They saw themselves in the church, part of the church, helping to change the church. So mm -hmm. going to a convent, yes, there are godly women there. I'm going to a convent. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because you're, that'll help kind of understand the role that she played. You know, so we're not thinking like, well, why didn't she just break away? Right, and, right. You know, it's like, wait a minute. Right. She's working yes. from within. I right. think that's a really good point. So uh, her early sonnets in the 1520s are mostly about her love for her husband, mm. which is interesting because he wasn't even really around that much. But <laughs> absence <laughs> she was very makes, faithful. Absence yeah, makes the heart totally. go fonder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, you know, she did write about her love for God, but um, her later works became more spiritually minded, more reform minded. And so in the 1530s, she was exposed to some reform minded um, figures. Uh, there was a Spanish Catholic man named Juan de Valdez. And I can't remember if he's come up before on our podcast or not, but he was a pretty significant uh, Spanish Catholic figure who still wanted to see reform in the church. He never broke away, but he was within. There was also a reform-minded Anglican, so we're talking about a Church of England guy, Cardinal Reginald Pohl. And Pohl was another figure. I've actually read some of his writings in um, some of the like the Reformation studies I've done because he was, he never broke away. He never became a, you know, Protestant per se, but from within, he really uh, talked a lot about, you know, again, justification by faith, all of these kinds of things. And so these folks, uh, Pohl actually became a personal friend of hers. And so their views, the views of Valdez and Pohl began to really influence her relationship with God, ultimately her writings. And so she got to the point where she realized, I just want to write about the Lord and all he's doing in my life. And so um, her spiritual poetry will have what we would call a Catholic flavor, you know, because she talks about the saints and different kinds of things. But gradually, it began to be, as one one biographer said, marked by its acceptance of the sola fide doctrine, remember salvation by faith alone, that Italian reform shared with Martin Luther. And so she's starting to lean that way more. And as um, King points out, this was uh, at a time when reformist expressions were able to circulate somewhat freely. So she's a little bit on the earlier side. Like I said, she was born in 1490. So she was born before the Reformation. In her 20s and 30s, things started to really 
role <laughs> with the reform. And so it, it wasn't really um, spoken out against quite as much yet. There wasn't as much pushback on just, you know, little people like her, <laughs> right, that are just writing and starting to discuss these ideas. Uh, however, as time went on, at one point, Vittoria and Cardinal Pohl uh, got investigated for their re- Reformation sympathies as time moved on. Again, she and Pohl are writing, and people must have gotten a hold of these letters somehow and started to be suspicious of them. So in 1540, she this is really interesting. She wrote a volume of spiritual sonnets for Michelangelo. Wow. And they had become—I know, you forget all of these people were contemporaries, I guess. Yes. So she had befriended him. Uh, he was 20 years older than her, and so, you know, he was on his way out at this point. But <laughs> um, but they were, you know, they were friends, and um, he she was concerned about his, um, you know, walk with God, his spiritual condition. And this is actually really interesting because a lot of historians talk about how Michelangelo seemed to believe in salvation by faith in Christ, but he was really dependent on his friends for his walk with God. Uh, interesting. One of those kind of people that just needs to constantly— be supported and encouraged, and he never really took some strong stance on his own. One biographer kind of interprets his friendship with Vittoria as one in which he was looking to her for spiritual encouragement and support. Even though she was a lot younger, she just had a more just a vibrant faith that he was really drawn to, and that's why she wrote those spiritual sonnets to him. And he actually said to her in a, in a letter, the more I keep hating and fleeing from myself, the more I run to you for help, my lady, with honest hope, and my soul fears for me less, the more I'm close to you. And so it's interesting that he, she would have this kind of influence, spiritual influence on somebody that we know in the world of art. We just, again, we forget not only that these people are contemporaries, that, but that all of these people are working through spiritual issues during this time. As the Reformation comes to a head, people are starting to really grapple with the idea of salvation by faith and not works. And so... Michelangelo was one of those figures. Well, I think Michelangelo, because he worked so closely with the priests and um, mm. with the sculptures, I know at the Sistine Chapel, there's a, I think it's Satan who, or is it Judas? Uh, one of those figures is portrayed with the face of one of the uh, popes. Ah, yes. So, Interesting. Yeah. So he's seen a lot, probably mm-hmm. more than he wanted to, mm-hmm. <laughs> of what was right. going on behind the scenes. So it's interesting because they were such good friends, Vittoria and Michelangelo, that he was at her bedside when she died. Mm. So very sweet. Um, She also, this is kind of cool, too, as a tie-in with um, some of the gals we've talked about previously. Um, And and Sherilyn and I have mentioned how there's a lot of overlap here. Uh, Vittoria also wrote a volume of sonnets for Marguerite de Navarre. Mm. So that's kind of neat. And she looked to Marguerite as um, someone like-minded, a friend, and as well as an inspiration. They never actually met in person, but they corresponded with each other. And Marguerite was so active in her connection with the reformers that I think she was a good uh, inspiration and role model for Victoria in that sense. And they were very well-suited as, like I said, as like-minded, not just like-minded, reform-minded women, but as writers and associates. In fact, uh, Margaret King says the, about the boldness of Marguerite and later Victoria, she became more forthright in her writings, that they engaged in high-level intellectual circles alongside major male thinkers, writing publicly, publishing their works, above all giving voice to evangelical themes of grace, faith, redemption, whose riskiness was becoming clear once Luther launched his revolt. And so, uh, again, it's kind of fun to just see these people pop up. And that was one reason I start, I chose to talk about Vittoria. And then the next gal we're going to do was because I kept seeing them pop up in the stories and lives of people like Marguerite de Navarre or Renee of France, as we're going to see. So um, Vittoria began to become, toward the end of her life, a little more active in practical reform. 
kind of a self-appointed patron of reform movements within the church. Um, and her most notable efforts were focused on uh, a reformed Franciscan order called the Capuchins. And not cappuccinos. No, but that's, that's what you were thinking. Cappuccinos but, was named after the uh, robes that they wore. Hey, and the whoa, color. Fun and fact. And so the cappuccino was the same color. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. hilarious. That's how they, you know, that's how they nice. got their name. And that's going to be the only thing everybody remembers from this podcast. I'm just, <laughs> oh. No, I love it. That's great. So along with her friendship with uh, Cardinal Pohl, this attempt to reform the Capuchins was what made her a suspicious figure in the eyes of the Catholic Church. So uh, in a sense, it was kind of fortunate that she died uh, in 1547 before the Counter-Reformation and the Inquisition really became more oppressive, more uh, active in their efforts to silence these reformers. And so it was almost a mercy um, because she kind of got out on the tail end there so of, of, the, of the period of reprieve. And so uh, she really believed to the end of her life that the Lord had inspired her writing. She said, I move my pen impelled by inner love. And mm. so that was Vittoria kind of bringing, again, um, Italian women even in literature to the forefront and putting them on the map there. So that brings us actually to the next gal who is Olympia, Olympia Morata. And so, okay, Vittoria Colonna escaped, like I said, some of the retaliation against the Protestants in her lifetime, but there was another reform-minded Italian who came a little bit later than her, uh, like a generation later, Olympia Morata, and she was not so lucky. She kind of was right in the thick of everything. So Olympia was born in Ferrara, Italy, oh, in that's 1526. Interesting. Oh, this that is was, where... This is Italian. Yes. Yep. Yes, <laughs> yes I, I'm sensing I that. knew that would, yes, yes, I knew that would trigger something for you. So she was one of five children born to um, a humanist named Fulvio Pellegrino Morato and his wife Lucre Lucrezia. That's probably how you would say that. So he was a tutor at the court of Ferrara in the 1520s and a teacher in Venice and Vicenza in the 1530s. And during that time, he began to be heavily influenced by the reformers before coming back to the court of Ferrara. So Fulvio was dedicated to uh, the education of his children. Again, he was a humanist in this, and, and I say that in the sense of he was um, really into the humanities, into literature. It's interesting, we talk about humanism as more of a, se a secular humanism, as elevating and glorifying man, uh, but there's another side of humanism, at least in that day, that um, dealt more with um, the arts and literature and the, and writing. If you read about Erasmus of Rotterdam, he's considered a Reformation figure, but he's also called a humanist because he was really big on text and writing and literature and going to the original sources. He actually translated a Greek New Testament. And so, um, you know, you have this other side of it at that time. Again, nowadays we think mostly of humanism in those negative terms, but back then there was an aspect of humanism that related primarily just to literature and the arts. And so that was really what Fulvio was all about for his kids. And he was really dedicated to Olympia's education because he could see this girl had a gift. She had a brilliant mind. Um, she was considered a child prodigy. She spoke Greek fluently when she was only 12, studied classical languages, grammar, history, moral philosophy. Uh, so when she was 13 or 14, she was invited to the court of Ferrara as a companion to, guess who? Renee of France's nine-year-old daughter, Anne. So wow. she became her companion in the court. Wow. Kind of like a big sister and uh, hopefully an encouragement in education and that kind of a thing. And so the girls got tutored together and um, Olympia's knowledge and then, her, of course, her love for learning just continued to grow exponentially during this time. And she was a big influence and encouragement to young Anne as well. 
So under the influence of both Fulvio, her father, and again, reform-minded Duchess Renee, here she is with Renee of France, this amazing woman, a godly woman of integrity and who loved the word of God and the Reformation, but, Olympia began to grow in her own love for the Bible and the things of God. But I, mm-hmm. I was thinking, too, how Renee of France had um, her tutor mm. that she brought for her children mm-hmm. and Michelle Dubois. Yeah. That that would have been and, – and Michelle's father was also had been a teacher, and he was also a humanist. Oh, interesting. And uh, leaned towards the Reformed uh, theologians. Right. So now you've got – you'd have a meeting. So this tutor of Anne. Hmm. who's in the court, has a background very close to Olympias. Oh, I love it. I hadn't thought about that. That's a great connection there. So, And it is interesting because at heart, Olympia really was, because her her dad trained her this way, and clearly these tutors in Renee of France's court, uh, she really was a, a scholar and a classicist first, which means, again, just like with the humanists in that day, she was focused on actual texts and sources. And the reason why so many of these quote, humanists, were leaning towards the Reformation was because of that, because they were really... Um, Closer they, to the original text yes, of the Bible. Yes, they like, man, this is really important that we look at the Bible mm-hmm. and look at what the Word actually says. And then let's not just look at man's tradition and what the church is doing and just take it as gospel truth. Let's actually look at the gospel. <laughs> let's look at what the Bible says. And so she was much more devoted to the text of God's Word than the teachings of the church. Again, that's, that's something that was uh, part of this whole humanist movement. And so... Significantly, uh, Kirsi Scherna, she says, religion would become more important to her in the course of her marriage, relocation, and the hardship that she both witnessed and experienced. So this is kind of a foreshadowing here of what's going to come. Because her walk with the Lord, it was starting to develop during this time, but it really began to grow because from this point on, while she's in the court, things start heating up on the Reformation and she starts to go through trials. And that's when her walk with God really deepens. And I'm sure many people can testify to that. It's the trials yeah. that cause it to make it. And really this would real. have been probably about the same time that Renee uh, Farrar was uh, put in prison by her husband. Exactly, and that's what happened. The Inquisition reached the court of Ferrara in the mid 1540s. Renee gets in trouble, and so as Renee and the other reform-minded um, people, you know, fellow Protestants, even were were being persecuted. Uh, it led to the execution of one of Olympia's personal acquaintances. So that really shocked her. She didn't think it would ever become that controversial, that somebody would actually die over this. Mm-hmm. So that was really devastating to her. There were at least five reformed Italian mm. pastors that were killed by Hercule Estes, oh, the, In the court. Duke of Navarre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The Duke of Ferrar. Yeah. So, so it's yes. really hitting home now. Yeah. I mean, it's like, wow, this is this yeah. is a real thing. Yeah. This isn't just a yeah. fun intellectual pursuit. Right. <laughs> to study the Bible and all mm-hmm. of that. This is this is a life commitment. Uh, she herself was banished soon after as well. And so it didn't help that Olympia had become so scholarly and so spiritually minded because when she was young, um, her education was allowed and even encouraged. People didn't have a problem with young women uh, in these elite families getting some kind of an education and having tutors. But, you know, as they become adults and start speaking or having a mind of their own, you know, these women can become a threat to the established order. And that was what Olympia began to look like to them. Um, and so it was said that she was in disgrace, perhaps, for the dangerous habit, it seems, that she had acquired reading the Old and New Testaments. <laughs> dangerous. Very dangerous. 
1546, all this is going on, and Olympia became really ill. Two years later, her dad died, and her dad was just, you know, the, the I, I don't know, just such a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Just a, a rock, yeah. such a pillar in her life. And so this was devastating. And not only that, but again, she's no longer welcomed at court. And so Olympia was plunged into the abyss. And this was, like I said, when she really began to turn to the Lord even more and really make her faith uh, her own and and really uh, develop that genuine relationship with Jesus. So she was in distress. But later, this is cool, she recognized that God had a hand in all of these trials. She said, if I had remained any longer in the court of Ferrara, it would have been all over for me and my salvation. For while I was there, I was never allowed to undertake anything higher divine, not even to read the books of either the Old or New Testament. Mm. So it had gotten to that point where Mm -hmm. she couldn't even read the Bible, and she recognized later, wow, Lord, you protected me. So a huge encouragement to her faith was uh, her marriage in 1550 to a Protestant Bavarian doctor named Andreas Gruntler. And Olympia and Andreas really loved each other, and they were, I mean, you read their story, and it's like, wow, these guys were soulmates, which was really unusual in that day, you know, to be able to have that opportunity to marry someone so like-minded and not just a marriage of politics or convenience. She wrote, not even the hatred of a prince or my wretched state could keep him from marrying me. Mm. (laughs) Even though she herself had been rejected by the court and was in such dire straits, he was not phased. And so for many women in the 16th century, marriage meant the end of intellectual pursuit. But Olympia became an exception, not just because of her remarkable intellectual abilities, but because Andreas actually encouraged her in her academic endeavors. So like I said, they were very uh, like-minded soulmates. And, I mean, he was behind her in all of her studies. So it was just really unusual to see uh, that kind of support from a man for his wife in that day. So shortly after their marriage, they moved to, uh, they had to move to Schweinfurt, Germany, where Andreas worked as a doctor and Olympia continued her studies and started writing. Again, with his support, very unusual. Now that she was in the land of the Reformation, she began to actively promote the reformers. And she even encouraged... um, linguist to translate Protestant writings into Italian for her fellow countrymen. Mm. So she's trying to send works back to Italy now. She herself translated a lot of psalms into Greek, and her husband set them to music. Just such a cool team they were. Now, a lot of what we know about Olympia during this period comes from letters that she wrote. Uh, Very literary. A lot of times she would talk about learning for women, uh, but also primarily spiritual themes. And as war began to heat up now between the Protestants and Catholics, Olympia and Andreas were forced to flee Schweinfurt on foot. They they struggled to survive. They lost everything. Mm -hmm. And biographies even point out that they lost their beloved books, which was a really devastating loss for these these literary people. Especially in those days. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So expensive. Yeah, totally, that too. So under the protection of some friends in the nobility, eventually they made it to Heidelberg and and started trying to rebuild their lives there. But they had gone through a lot of devastation. So Andreas continued his medical profession. Olympia uh, corresponded widely with university men, uh, reformers like Luther and Melanchthon. She started writing to them, women that she wanted to inspire and encourage to get educated. She also continued working toward getting Luther's writings uh, translated into Italian. So... Again, a lot of the Re- Reformation, the, the little light that was there in Italy came from people like Olympia sending these writings back, translated in Italian. One historian suggested that if Olympia had lived longer, she would have probably become the first woman to teach at a university in Germany. That's how brilliant she was and respected for her um, intellect. Because of her confident understanding in God's word, 
One uh, biographer said that despite her deference to the learning and devotion of male reformers, she feels sure of her own religious ideas and believes she has a religious duty through letters and dialogues to urge others, especially women, to write living the spreading of the true Christian faith and the defense of its martyrs. And so her theology focused on Reformation themes, and she wrote so solidly about salvation by faith, the love and providence of God, the work of Christ. And she understood the debates between the reformers, but she really believed there should not be so much division among them. And she was right. It's too bad more of the men weren't like that, like her in that. Remember, think of like Catherine Zell and some of these others who called for unity. And man, there was just a, a wisdom there in some of these women. <laughs> so Olympia also wrote a lot about suffering. She pondered the theological meaning of suffering because of her own experiences. Um, quote, her own suffering letter to identify with the suffering of others, especially those joined with her in the faith. And she wrote letters back to Renee of France's daughter, Anne, uh, in Ferrara to intercede for the Huguenots in France while they Which were being persecuted. Which is interesting because remember, Anne had married that uh, Roman Catholic uh, general who, yeah. who was uh, actually killed by Huguenots. Oh, so interesting. And wow. so Anne had turned against the Huguenots so because of what happened. Wow. So she's trying to appeal, I suppose, on the basis of their friendship. But I that's guess. a But that was really wow. interesting. That's yes. a bold move to mm -hmm. write a letter. <laughs> yes, it really was. So sadly, Olympia is doing all of these wonderful things for the kingdom, for the glory of God. But her body was just so depleted by the flight from Schweinfurt. I mean, they had really been wrecked, her and Andreas, in trying to get to Heidelberg. And she also was attacked by tuberculosis and never mm. fully recovered. So knowing her life would be short, she said, I long to be dissolved, so great is the confidence of my mind, and to be with Christ in whom my life has flourished. So she died at the young age of 29, October 26, 1555. And a few weeks later, her um, beloved husband and brother died of the plague. I mean, it was just wow. a devastating, mm -hmm. I know. Devastating series of losses there. Her friend, Celio Curioni, um, who she had done a lot, uh, corresponded a lot with, uh, he collected and published her works in 1558. They went through four editions, and he dedicated the 1562 edition to Queen Elizabeth I of England. Wow. Interesting. And they became, her letters became popular uh, in the 16th century. They faded out, though, until Goethe, of all people, rediscovered her in the 18th century. And who so, was that that rediscovered her? Uh, Goethe the German author. So okay. yeah, not a Christian or anything. Very interesting. So, uh, but her work was recognized as, you know, not only intellectual, but very, very spiritually minded. So she was quite a, quite a force in her quiet way in the short life she had. That's Olympia Morata. And that's <laughs> why these women are definitely worth knowing about. Yes, they are. So Absolutely. if you have a woman, um, I just got a letter from someone. She said, could you feature like an everyday woman sometime? <laughs> so if you are an everyday woman or you know someone who's an everyday woman, but it's just worth a woman worth knowing mm -hmm. because she just loves her husband or loves mm -hmm. her children or it just goes about loving Jesus. We want to know. Yeah. And we want to honor that person. So write us at www.k at cccm.com. And so that's all we have for today, but we'll be back with some more women from the Reformation. Reformation. Yes. That's right. <laughs> See you next week. Or listen to us next week. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. 
Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.